Hey, everyone. Hello, hello. Uh, shalom, bonjour, Sam. <laughs> Hi, David. What's up? Sitting inside my apartment on this rainy day. Yeah, it's it's very unpleasant outside. But I'm glad to say that we're here with a new installment of our uh, In the Streets series. Specifically, an In the Streets, which features an interview with Skylar Williams, who's a spokesperson for 1492 Landback Lane. And 1492 Lineback Lane is uh, it's a land reclamation project that's uh, taking place at Six Nations right now. Uh, folks have been occupying the site there for about three months, uh, defending their territory from a planned settler housing development. Yeah, and, and Six Nations, you know, it's just about an hour drive west from Toronto. And while it's the most populated reserve in so-called Canada, it's been severely reduced in size by ongoing land theft and settlement. And so on October 9th, there is a big multi-city day of action that took place in solidarity with the ongoing land defense effort going on there. And just after this mobilization, David was able to chat with Skylar about the struggle that's going on. Yeah. And, you know, just a note that the audio quality is unfortunately not great. You know, just a limitation of, of the situation right now. Uh, but if you have trouble hearing any part of the conversation, we have a link to a full transcript in the show notes. And just an update that since this conversation a few days ago, unfortunately, several more people have been arrested by the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, including Tani Williams, who's, who's married to Skylar. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Skylar Williams. Hey, Skylar, can you hear me? I can. Great. Thanks for uh, bearing with me with this uh, weird technical situation. And... Oh, good. I am yours for at least an hour. Okay, great. So if you want to just say your name and then a bit about who you are, uh, we can just uh, take it from there. Sure. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Skylar Williams from uh, Six Nations, Grand River. Uh, we've been hanging out at 1492 Landback Lane now where today is day number 87 87 yep yeah. uh, well Skylar thanks for uh, coming on the show it's great to be talking with you absolutely a pleasure to be here so I have a lot of questions uh, obviously you want to talk about 1492 Landback Lane and the land reclamation project that's happening right now uh, on Six Nations territory um, but to start off, just for folks who aren't familiar with the struggle, who maybe aren't familiar with Six Nations, uh, can you maybe give some background on what the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve is? So yeah, so the Six Nations itself, as it sits today anyways, is about a 12 by 14 kilometer square, kind of smack dab in the middle of southern Ontario. It's about 20 minutes south of Hamilton. Uh, it used to be from the mouth to the source of the Grand River, which is about 200 miles long, six miles on either side of that river, and has been slowly eroded away by squatters and fraudulent land deals over the last 150 years or so. And so that's kind of where we're at right now, is this kind of small 10 by 12 little kilometers square uh, postage stamp in the middle of Berlin, uh, Ontario. It is the most populated reserve, not just in Canada, but in North America. And, you know, I think it's probably important to also say that what's happening right now is certainly not the, the first struggle like this to happen at Six Nations. Uh, you know, in 2006, there was a protracted land defense struggle against uh, the Douglas Creek Estates housing development that was planned for Six Nations territory. You know, a struggle that you were part of and, and led to the successful land reclamation of what's now known as Gunnestado. Uh, You know, for people who are unfamiliar with this history, can you tell us a bit about what happened back in 2006? 
Uh, yeah, there was a development that rolled up right on the, like, that bordered the reserve that was going to see about a thousand houses built, like, right on our doorstep. And, uh, there was lots and lots of documentation about whose land it was and how it was squatted on and how all of the fraudulent dealings of, you know, the last 150 years had, uh, got it to the point where we are kind of hemmed into this little reserve. And so there was a group of women there that kind of banded together and wanted to share some information about, you know, whose land it was that people were developing on. And so they had went in and uh, were handing out pamphlets and flyers to people, letting people understand and know what, uh, what was happening. In the process of this, they um, had been confronted by some of the people that were working at the site there. Some of the workers kind of confronted some of the women there, and there was a load of gravel that was poured at their feet from a dump truck. And so then myself and some of the guys from Six Nations here came out and people from all over Turtle Island came out to come and lend a hand and support. And it didn't start out that way, but it became a land reclamation. And we took back our land and it's been 14 and a half years now. And our people are still occupying that land today. And, you know, looking back at that process of reclaiming that territory, uh, w- what did that struggle look like? And, and how does it compare to what's going on right now? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it was just about occupation. And just like it is today, it was peaceful and remained peaceful from the very start till, till right now. The only days that there was ever violence that was coming to anybody there was when, uh, when the OPP raided. And at that time, they raided with... 220 OPP officers, snipers and trees. There's lots of uh, emergency response team unit members that were like full military gear, tear gas canister guns, like the whole works. And so they raided April 20th, 2006. Uh, I wasn't arrested that day, but I spent about a year in the bush there. And eventually after that, I was charged for several crimes and spent seven months in jail. And then at my trial, all the charges were dropped and thrown out, and I was released. And so, yeah, there was quite a bit of police violence that was happening, and so, uh, you know, lots of people did defend themselves. And for myself, I had half a dozen counts of resisting arrest and assaulting police officers, and there was lots of that. But because they were all deemed illegal arrests at the time, all my charges were subsequently dropped. And, you know, something else that stands out to me looking back at that 2006 struggle is sort of the high level of white settler backlash that was going on at that time. You know, I remember Gary McHale's attempts at organizing a white militia in, in response to the land reclamation, you know, saying that the police weren't going far enough. Uh, yeah, there were there were lots of that. And like, the, uh, what was it, the Aryan Brotherhood had come down at one point to make their voices known. And there was lots and lots of lots of racist rhetoric that was kind of being floated around by lots of people like that. Uh, there were some moments of engagement with them that, that turned violent, and it was it was certainly an interesting time when Gary McHale came to town. Yeah, and, and you know, in, in some ways, it seems like that, you know, sort of reactionary settler violence continued forward. You, you know, I remember in, in 2012, I think it was the day after one of Gary McHale's rallies, there was a settler car attack that drove into the area that had been reclaimed. Uh, but today, it seems like that settler backlash is being led more explicitly by politicians, You know, whether it's Ontario Premier Doug Ford or Haldeman Mayor Ken Hewitt. Th- does it feel like that backlash is materializing differently this time? 
Yeah, there hasn't been any kind of in-your-face racism from uh, people who aren't politicians, although I do get quite a bit of death threats on a daily basis, and those generally spike around those moments when these politicians are talking in the media to say that, you know, uh, we're terrorists and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, when politicians throw around words like that, it inflames some of the far-right community that feels like they need to... Uh, get some settler justice, you know? Right. And, you know, whether it's happening among the far right and, and their media or even more mainstream media outlets, something that we saw happen during the shutdown Canada mobilization was uh, the strategy that really took advantage of widespread settler ignorance, uh, you know, in that case between the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and the ban cancel system imposed by Canada. You know, for those who aren't familiar with the context, what do you think people need to know about the differences between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Chiefs Council and, and the Six Nations Band Council? Uh, so, yeah, in 1924, an Indian Act government was put in at Six Nations, and it had been something that was taking a foothold in uh, Native communities across the country at the time. And so part of that Indian Act system was lots and lots of rules that governed Indigenous folks including the rule that we weren't allowed to hire a lawyer to defend ourselves in court. And, and if a lawyer did do it, they'd be disbarred. So yeah, there was uh, 1924, the RCMP rolled in and started making arrests of uh, some of our hereditary chiefs that you know were protesting that. At the time, uh, one of our chiefs, this guy, made a uh, trip to the UN to try and plead our case there, for which then he was barred from uh, re-entering the country under the rules under treason and he spent the remainder of his life last 25 years of his life in uh, upstate new york and so like uh, our people have been fighting against that bank council system since before its inception uh so after the rcmp rolled in and arrested everybody uh band council system was enacted here uh our people today fast forward 100 years the last voter turnout that we just had the percentage of possible voters was the biggest in Six Nations had ever seen. And that's 4.2% uh, of the possible voters turn out to vote. Uh, the hereditary chiefs have, you know, maintained their government for most conservative estimates, put it at about 1,000 years old, 1,200 years old. Some of the more less conservative estimates put it quite a bit older than that. And so this is at least a 1,200-year-old democracy that has been working on this continent for the last at least 1,200 years. And so for us, uh, if I was going to tell my mom or dad that I was going to vote in the election, it'd probably disown me. It's, you know, like this is participating in the oppression of our people. And so this is something that certainly my family and lots of people like me. 96% of our community feels that that's not their system that represents them. We have a lot more than 4% voter turnout. Right. And so moving back to the present moment, uh, can you talk a bit about the site that's uh, become known as 1492 Lambeck Lane? Like, how did things first get started? Uh, it was some friends and I uh, were talking one day and had been involved in other things in the past. And we had heard about this other development that was rolling up. And the thing is, is like the 2006 reclamation that we were just talking about, this particular development is going to roll up right to the front door of that development, directly across the road. And so, like, for people like myself that spent a lot of time in the bush there and you know, a good chunk of time in jail for it, we saw that as a big slap in the face to the efforts that we had made previous. 
So, and then we had done all of our research that we needed to do and found out all of the land deals that happened to make that particular tract of land kind of followed the paperwork along and felt like we had a proper claim over the land there. And then, then COVID happened. And so we kind of got sidelined by that for several months. But during that time, development rolled on. Bulldozers were working, and as soon as uh, COVID stuff started to lessen, I know it's tightening again, but as soon as it started to lessen a bit, we said, all right, it's time. And on July 19th, we gathered our friends and family, and there was about 20 of us on the first day, dozen cars, and we just rolled right in the front door uh, of Landback Lane, and we wanted to make things as peaceful and as unconfrontational as we possibly could. You know, we were being very deliberate about the way that we did things. And so moving in there on a Sunday evening, we wanted to make sure that there was going to be no developers who were going to be confronting. And so when we got there, we were there for about an hour. We sat down, we made a fire, we put up some flags, and we sat down, we ate dinner together, we laughed and joked. And uh, about an hour later, the cop killed him. Uh, OPP, a couple of OPP cruisers rolled in. They asked how long we were planning on being there. And I said, well, my people have been here for the last 10,000 years. I think we're probably going to be here for 10,000 more. They said, oh, so, well, your friends, you're going to be here for a while? Said, yeah, we're probably going to be here for a while. Yeah, and then they left, and that was that was the first day. And then we camped out that night, and then, and we've been camped out there now, yeah, almost 90 days. About three months we've been there now. And, and it seems like a big turning point happened on August 5th when the OPP raided the site. Uh, can you talk a bit about what happened that day? There had been some injunction stuff that the developer was pushing for. Uh, finally, on August 5th, the uh, developer got the injunction, and the police were ready to enforce that injunction. The cops came in, shooting rubber bullets, uh, grabbing people, tasering people. Uh, one guy got knee in the back of his neck and getting dragged along the pavement set some scars on his face because of it and uh the one guy got tased in the neck and head uh, you know i had rubber bullets whizzing by my ears uh there was myself and eight other people that were arrested that day but when i got out of jail that day this woman come running up to me on the phone and showed me a video live feed video of somebody on facebook or twitter or something of uh bunch of fires on the highway, fires on the train tracks, fires on Argyle Street, and people pushing the cops back. And so there was lots and lots and lots of stuff that was going on um, in my absence while I was uh, dealing with uh, being locked up. Yeah, I mean, like blockades were set up to prevent the police from entering the territory. There was a secondary support camp that was established. You know, construction equipment was set on fire. Um, can you talk a bit about that support that manifested after the raid? Yeah, I mean, there was lots of barricades that were set up across Highway 6, um, uh, train tracks that kind of border our reserve uh, road that kind of connects the back of our camp. It's a dirt trail, it's kind of the uh, back entrance for us to get into the camp. And so all of these kind of ways were cut off from people getting onto the site there at uh, Landback Lane. And hundreds of people came out from Six Nations and surrounding communities to voice their displeasure with what was happening. And uh, as much as I'm not a big fan of setting tires on fire and uh, barricades and all that stuff, after, you know, 400 years of hate and anger and 
over-incarceration of indigenous people, residential school, like all of that history of violence that's been predicated on Indian people. When that racism is something that is whispered behind people's backs and in their own quiet corners, it's almost tolerable for people. But when that racism is so in your face that the cops are coming into people occupying their own land and they're being shot at and tasered and beaten and dragged off of their land, that kind of racism is so in your face that it brings up all of that quiet racism that we've dealt with and are dealing with every day. And so when I got no blame for anybody who set a tire on fire that day or flipped the car over in the middle of the road or burnt an excavator or anything that anybody did that day, I had no blame whatsoever. And I certainly don't have any judgment for it because if this is what the state is planning on doing to Indigenous people who stand up for their rights. This is what you can expect when you beat and alienate from the system an entire race of people. And certainly a community as big as vast as diverse as Six Nations is, and you inflame that situation like that, how can you expect a different result than people coming out and voicing that frustration and that anger towards the system that has seen them jailed beyond words, that has seen them shot and killed by police violence? It's absolutely ridiculous to think that there would have been any kind of other result other than what happened. Yeah, and, and you know, it seems like that support that materialized after the raid uh, has been an important factor in preventing another police raid of the site, or, or at least for now. And that support has continued to build in different ways. You know, we got to see it across multiple cities a few days ago. On October 9th, there was a call for a day of action in solidarity with 1492 Landback Lane. Uh, what, what did that day mean for folks who were at the site at the time? Yeah, I mean, that day coincided for us with our last court hearing, which was the injunction hearing, where the judge was supposed to be ruling on whether or not there would be a permanent injunction on the land there that would have this superior court judge in Haldeman, Haldeman County, Ontario, be able to take it upon himself to extinguish all land claims over that and at the same time not allow me to speak in my defense. And so, yeah, to see actions in Vancouver and Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, uh, Montreal, uh, Toronto, Guelph, Cambridge, Nova Scotia, like it was every city, uh, lots of reserves came out in huge, huge ways. And there's a huge team that has held it down now for like almost three months at Landback Lane. And like I cannot say enough about the women that have spearheaded this movement and are the ones pushing us through all of the hard times and the good times and the every in the everyday times that are just like these women have managed to uh, hold it down in a way. You know, we're a matrilineal society here, and we really hold our women very very high esteem and make sure that we take their direction and their uh, guidance very very seriously. And so these women have held it down in ways that I've never seen before, and it's an amazing thing to be a part of that right and you know as, as folks continue to hold things down at the site and as all this support is building uh repression is continuing you know instead of doing another raid the police have been going to the homes of people who they believe have been on the site and you know arresting them charging people putting warrants out for people's arrests uh, how, how many people have received charges at this point uh so right now i think it's 32 total and people have been getting calls um my wife included. People have been just calling them at home and 
you know, for a lot of people that, you know, have jobs and have kids, they can't have a warrant for them, you know, and not have it dealt with. And so they have to turn themselves in or OPP have been showing up at their homes. And uh, one guy got arrested, pulled over on the side of the road by several several police cruisers and dragged out of the car in front of his kid. Uh, one girl went to her uh, grandmother's funeral in the state. And when she came back across the border with her four children, was uh, hauled in and uh, arrested at the border. And so, yeah, it's it's pretty consistent criminalization of uh, of our uh, land defenders. And and what was the result of that court hearing that happened on October 9th? As all all the support actions were taking place, you know, where where are things at right now in terms of the legal attack on the folks defending the territory? So right now, the judge did not make a ruling whatsoever on the injunction stuff. What he said in his judgment that we need to leave the land and if I'm going to be able to defend myself uh, because I am the only named party in it, I need to be off the land. But not only am I responsible only for my actions, but I need to make everybody else that came there with me, I have to make them leave as well. And he said that Six Nations had never made a claim over that land before through the court or through government. And just so, you know, your listeners can know, I mean, it was uh, about 1820 that our our people here at Six Nations started asking the government and petitioning government to remove squatters from our land. And so we did that consistently from 1820 till about 1920. After 1920, uh, residential school had really taken a foothold. Uh, and the Indian Act was being implemented. Uh, after 1921, we were no longer allowed to hire a lawyer, and that stayed that way until the mid-50s. After 1950, the 60 scoop happened, and so then it was dealing with the trauma and aftermath of, like my dad will, will tell stories of, uh, you know, hiding in the bush during the 60s while he was on his way to school, because the church would come out and uh, snatch kids on their way to school to take them to the residential school. It wasn't exactly the ideal moment for us as a people to be able to uh, push forward with any kind of land claims issue because you didn't know whether or not you were going to have kids to feed or means to, and there was a pass system for leaving the reserve. You had to go and talk to the Indian agent to get your pass to leave the reservation to go to the grocery store. Like it was, you could not be in the same house with five people that were not your family members. Like there was lots and lots of laws that kept us from being able to do any of this kind of stuff prior to the last 15 years. And so uh, 15 years ago, the Douglas Creek Estates kind of thought, oh no, that happened. And that kind of lit a fire into everybody that said like, you know what, we, it's time that our voices be heard again. It is absolutely time. And like the system has been built and designed in a way that sees indigenous people alienated from that process. And we're saying, you know what, no more. And this particular judge who really, really doesn't like me very much is, uh, and we've got to remember that, the Haldeman County Court is literally a stone throw from the river. If you could walk out the back door of the courthouse, throw a stone, and it would splash into the water. So like, to say that they don't have bias, that the court that is making the judgment is actually sitting on, on contested land. And so it's, it's really hard for a lot of folks, certainly from Six Nations, to sit idly by while this stuff is happening. And so following that court hearing, is there still technically a warrant out for your arrest? 
Oh, there's no technically about it. No, they they're in full yeah. They weren't for my arrest. Yeah. And and so, what does that mean for you right now? Well, it means I'm not going to the grocery store anytime soon. <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm not hiding. Lived in my home for you know the last ten years, and then I'm, I'm not going to hide from anybody. I I mean, for the last three months, I've lived down at Landau Lane, but uh, I go home every couple of days, have a shower, wash my clothes, and see my kids, and you know, make sure my pigs and goats and chickens are all fed, and I live in a farm, and like, yeah, so uh, I'm not hiding from anybody, and yeah. Um, so, you know, as the struggle is now continuing into the colder weather, uh, and folks are making plans for the winter, are, are there any parts of that struggle from 2006 that are sort of in the back of your mind right now? Uh, sure, there are a lot of, there's lots and lots of things that are, you know, that are, you know, that are very similar and that are, you know, some of the people, some of the, um, the good times and the happy and the laughing and the stories and the, our people like to sing and dance and laugh and do all the things that we do as Oklahoma people and it's certainly a, uh, those bits anyways are, are quite refreshing to be able to kind of be a part of that. And so yeah, there are, there are lots of uh, similarities. And, and what are things like at the site right now? Like, how, how are spirits considering everything that's going on? Uh, I mean, they ebb and flow. I mean, the spirits right now are good. You know, like, everybody is mostly the same as what they have been, which is sitting around the fire and cutting wood. And there's always camp maintenance that's happening. We've got a building that's going on. There's lots of people working on the law stuff and trying to support all the people that are being charged criminally. And so we've been doing lots to make sure that we're able to keep pushing forward with all of the things that we need to do in order to um, maintain our presence throughout the winter. And I know that there's both a building fund and a legal fund to help that work continue. Uh, if people are able to donate to either of those, uh, we're going to have links in the show notes. Uh, but is there anything you think people should know about the need for funds right now? Uh, yeah, so like the number of warrants that are out right now, I think was that 22 as well as the 30 that have already been arrested so the criminal defense stuff is, is huge and in order for us to be able to win at this we need to be able to stay there and occupy our life and so we, we we've got both going so the criminal defense stuff you can find on gofundme just look up 1492 land back lane and for the uh camp and the build fund so we use that money for you know building and you know gas for the generators uh, we would not be able to do the work that we're doing without the you know generous support of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have pushed us to this point right now. Well, Skylar, uh, thank you so much for taking this time to chat. I, I know things are pretty hectic out there right now, uh, so I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and you know, sending our solidarity uh, from all of us out here. Great, on. I appreciate that very much. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CQT 90.3 FM, where we normally record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Gunyagahaga territory. Thanks, as always, to Sack Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode, and to everybody who helps make Trafe Podcast happen. You can also follow us on all the social medias at Trafe, T R E Y F. That includes Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also visit our shiny website, trafepodcast.com. 
And you can send us comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Oh.